Well, uh, as we come to the conclusion of our conference, we also come to the conclusion of our chapter. Uh, But let's start with some scripture, and let's turn to, again, the book of Romans, and uh, we'll just read verses 14 uh, down to the end of the chapter. Uh, Romans chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being... But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, we do come to this uh, last paragraph within chapter 6 of our confession, and uh, we'll read it now. This corruption of nature, right, the corruption of nature that was just discussed in the last paragraph that we just heard about, that corruption of nature that is inherited from Adam, this corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those who are regenerated, And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Uh, Here we find uh, the doctrine that we, uh, or many of us, call remaining sin. It's that sin that remains even within the regenerate, even within the believer, this corruption of nature. Remaining sin, Uh, the guilt of Adam's sin, we have seen, is removed in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Praise God, right? That imputed guilt, it is removed. Christ, uh, in his work on the cross, suffers the, the penalty for, yes, all of our own personal sins, but also for that original guilt that we, uh, was imputed to us from Adam, But the question still remains, all right, the guilt of Adam's sin is removed, but what about the corruption, right, the corruption that comes, that sinful tendency within all of us? Is that too eradicated when we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, sadly, as the confession points out here, no, not entirely. It remains, right, this Corruption remains during this life in those that are regenerated. Sadly, it's not completely eradicated. Sadly, but still, as we're going to see once again, 
in God's providence, it remains. So, so what does this, this paragraph teach us about the believer's remaining sin? And that's uh, what we'll just be looking at for the rest of uh, our time, for the rest of this conference. What does this paragraph teach about remaining sin within the believer, this continued corruption within even the regenerate? Well, the first thing that this paragraph asserts is the reality of remaining sin, <laughs> the reality. Uh, we've already kind of established that, but the confession is, is clear on this. Is there sin that remains? Yes, it's the reality of it. The corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. Uh, now, this is an, an explicit denial in our confession of a, a, a pernicious error that continues to rear its ugly head throughout the history of the church, uh, and it is damaging. Uh, it has destroyed people's faith uh, if they believe it and it doesn't come to pass, but that's, uh, that doctrine, uh, that false doctrine, is known as sinless perfectionism. Right? Sinless perfectionism. It's the idea that some special believers can, in this life, attain such a level, such a degree of holiness that they really no longer struggle with sin, that they can live without sinning. Now, uh, because that seems like such a ludicrous idea to all of us, uh, most people add tons of caveats to that, right? The, the doctrine dies the death of a thousand caveats because they say, all right, well, it's no intentional sin or it's no severe sin or something like that. But there have been those throughout the history of the church that have said, yes, that sinless perfectionism is something that believers can attain in this life, that they can overcome that corruption that we've all received uh, as an inheritance from our father, Adam. But our confession and other Reformed confessions deny this and deny it explicitly. Uh, they say, no, sorry, that's not going to happen. <laughs> not in this life. Uh, yes, true believers can and will advance in holiness, they will advance in their ability to resist temptation. After all, they are regenerated, right? That's what we're told here. This is the opposite of those who are described in, the, in paragraph 4, right? Those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, that's how we all enter into this world, but for believers, that is no longer the case. Right? You who are dead in trespasses and sins, God has made alive together with Jesus Christ, right? We are regenerated. We are revived. Uh, and so we have that new heart. We have uh, a new life. We have the, the, the identity of the new man now. We have the Spirit of God to help us. And yet, nevertheless, we will never be absolutely free from sin and temptation in this life. Uh, this is a clear teaching of our confession, but it's the teaching of our confession, of course, because it is the clear teaching of Scripture. And really, in order to, to prove this, I don't have to go beyond the proof texts that are, uh, are added to this paragraph, and I think they are completely sufficient and they are appropriate. Now, interestingly, and you know, for some people, controversially, most of the proof texts of this paragraph, if you have the confession there, you can see the proof texts, they come from where? They come from Romans chapter 7. Now, uh, I say that that's interesting and that's kind of controversial because uh, this chapter or this portion of this chapter of Romans 7 
uh, has long been debated about who Paul is describing here. Uh, right? People look at this description of this person. You know, Paul calls him I, which kind of gives you a clue as to who this is. <laughs> uh, people look at this description and they, they see this incredible, intense struggle with sin. Right? He's saying, I, the things I don't want to do, I just keep on doing. And the things that I want to do, I just can't seem to be able to do them. Right? And, and it seems like this struggle is, is so intense that it's, 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 it's too intense, it's too extreme, it's too defeatist for this to be describing a true believer, right? for this to be describing especially the Apostle Paul. Right? And so they, they go around and they, and they try, and again, I, I, there's probably some and probably some pastors in this room that disagree with me on this and, you know, disagree with our confession on this. <laughs> I, I do have to caveat this by saying that uh, to subscribe the confession of faith, I don't think, commits you to all of the proof texts and exactly how they're being used. Uh, so don't worry about that. I was, I was just joking about that. But it's clear at the very least that the, the framers, the editors of our confession, believed that Romans chapter 7 was describing the experience of a believer. Right? And again, I don't think it, that doctrine solely rests upon Romans chapter 7 in a particular interpretation of it. Uh, but I, I agree with how this text is being interpreted. I mean, again, it seems hard to believe that the Apostle Paul could describe his own present experience and his own present struggle with sin as he's writing the book of, Re uh, book of Revelation, the book of Romans, uh, I've been preaching through Revelation, it's on my mind. Uh, but the book of Romans, you know, at this stage of, of maturity in his Christian life, this stage of maturity in his apostolic ministry, and still have this intense of a struggle with sin. And so people think, no, this can't be talking about Paul. And so they, they argue, well, this is Paul maybe talking about his experience before he became a, a believer, before he was regenerated. Or perhaps Paul is just kind of speaking hypothetically, right? He's using himself, but he's just, he's, this isn't really autobiographical. It's just kind of hypothetical of some people's experience and uh, normally unbelievers' experience with, uh, with trying to keep the law of God. Uh, obviously, to defend this interpretation of it would take longer than we have here, but just to, to note a couple of things, a couple of things that I think push me further into the interpretation that, yes, this is actually Paul talking about his own present and ongoing experience in the Christian life. In uh, Romans chapter 7, and uh, beginning in verse 7, and down to at least verse 13, Paul speaks of himself, right? He's still using the first person, but he uses the past tense, right? When he talks about how the law came to him and killed him. But he's speaking in the past tense. And very clearly and very abruptly then in verse 15, he's still using the, the first person, right? So it's uh, to be assumed he's still talking about himself. And yet he switches to the present tense, and for the rest of the chapter, he uses the present tense to describe himself. Again, some people, uh, again, think that this is too extreme, and yet some of the ways he describes himself as, as really having a genuine desire to keep the law of God, and yet still not being able to do that as, as well as he, he would like. You know, him even saying that with his mind, he delights in the law of God. In the very next chapter, he's going to say that the natural man cannot 
delight. It cannot submit in any sense to the law of God. Uh, right? So, it seems like Paul is speaking of himself as a regenerate man, wanting, having that new man, having that new heart, really genuinely wanting to keep the law of God, and yet frustrated because even he still struggles with sin. He still gives in to temptation. He still himself cannot obey God as wholly and as fully as he would like. Again, whatever you think of this chapter and whatever conclusions you've come to uh, reach about this, at the very least, uh, the framers of our confession interpreted Romans chapter 7 as describing what can be the ongoing experience of a believer, of someone who is regenerate, and even of a mature believer, a very mature believer, even of a mature apostle like Paul. Uh, And yes, whether you think this doctrine is found here in Romans chapter 7 or not, uh, I think all of us must admit, as believers, we, we know what this experience is. All of us have gone through this same frustration with our own remaining sin. Yes, believers continue to struggle with sin, and that struggle can, at least at times, be intense, be extremely frustrating, can seem almost hopeless. Again, what does Paul cry out at the end of this discussion? You know, it's, it's almost as though the, the frustration in his, in, his, in his own life, in his own experience has reached a boiling point. He just cries out, oh, wretched man that I am. Is there sin remaining in the believer's life? Absolutely. But never, even with the Apostle Paul, will we be sinless until heaven or until Christ's return. Uh, The other proof text that's given to us uh, for this doctrine of, uh, well, this doctrine of remaining sin and against sinless perfectionism uh, that's mentioned in our confession is 1 John 1.8. And 1 John 1.8, again, is, is very clear. John writing to professing believers, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, some people look at this and say, well, he's saying well, we don't have any sin, that's, we, we've never committed any sin. But no, he's using the present tense here again. If we say we have no sin, and that's intentional because then he goes on in verse 9, or in, uh, sorry, in verse... Uh, Uh, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, right, so in the past, then he goes even more extreme, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin currently, that we have no sin, that we have attained sinless perfectionism, then what are we doing? Well, we're just deceiving ourselves, (laughs) absolutely. If you convince yourself that you have no longer any sin, you deceive yourself. And even worse, you make God a liar, right? Because God has said, no, all, even those who are regenerated in this life, continue to have this remaining corruption, this remaining sin within themselves. The reality of remaining sin, it's clear in our scripture, it's clear in our confession. And even for the most mature believers, There is still this ongoing struggle with sin until death, 
or until Christ's return. And really, if you talk to the most mature believers you know, they're going to be the first to tell you, yes, there is sin remaining within them. (laughs) It is absolutely the case. The more mature believers get, the more they understand of the law of God, the more they understand their own hearts in response to the law of God, the more they say, no, the older I get, the longer I live, the more sins I see discovered in my heart. And that's absolutely the case. The the Heidelberg uh, Catechism, and I had pulled this up on my phone, let's see if I can get it quick. Uh, But the Heidelberg Catechism makes this point very well in question and answer 114. It says, but can those, so this is after the exposition of the Ten Commandments, and so it says, can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? So can believers perfectly now fulfill the law of God? And what's the answer? No. No, and then it goes on, but even the holiest of men while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience. Even the holiest of men in this life have only a small beginning of the obedience that we owe to our God. And again, the most mature among us will be the first to say, amen, that is true. We are unworthy servants. Uh, We have not even done what it is our duty to do. Only the small beginnings of that. It's amazing to me that there are those who can convince themselves that sinless perfectionism is possible, or even worse, that they themselves have achieved sinless perfectionism. I I can only explain that by thinking that they have an incredibly low view of the law of God, uh, that they have a very shallow view of sin, and probably that they have a very high estimation of themselves which would be pride, which would be a sin, and would disqualify them from sinless perfectionism. So yes, the reality of remaining sin, the first thing that is, uh, is pointed out by our confession in paragraph five. It's clear, uh, I think undeniable, and even yes with scripture, yes with our confession, but even just in each and every one of our own experience. Yes, we continue to struggle with sin. So yes, this is the, the uplifting parts of, uh, of, of chapter, five, or ch- or chapter 6 of our confession. As we've said, there's sin, and then there's more sin, and now there's still sin, <laughs> even within the believer. So the reality of remaining sin, now let's make this even worse. The reality of remaining sin, but also, secondly, the sinfulness of remaining sin. <laughs> the sinfulness of remaining sin. Now, you could imagine that the question would arise, okay, so there's remaining sin within Christians, but, but is it really that bad? Are the sins of Christians really as, as sinful as even the sins of, of sinners? After all, our sins have been pardoned. They've been mortified or beginning to be mortified through Christ, as our confession says. Uh, they're the sins of believers, the remaining sin, that's not true and proper sin, is it? Well, again, our confession makes it clear. After asserting the remainingness of the believer's remaining sin, now the confession asserts the full sinfulness of the believer's remaining sin. And although it, the corruption remaining in the regenerate, although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself the original corruption, and the first motions thereof 
are truly and properly sin. Uh, As the previous clause was an explicit denial of the false doctrine of sinless perfectionism, so now the second clause is an explicit denial of the false doctrine, or with the Roman Catholic understanding, of concupiscence. Uh, Now, I'll I'll spare you a lengthy discussion of the doctrine of concupiscence, but suffice it to say that in Roman Catholic teaching, official Roman Catholic teaching, there is within all men, there was even in Adam and Eve themselves before the fall, a principle called concupiscence, known as concupiscence, which was a, a natural, innate inclination, tendency, desire for lower things, essentially for sinful things, right? They say this was even in in Adam and Eve before the fall. Now, again, our, our confession explicitly denies that. They were created upright. They were created in original righteousness, Uh, But to explain how Adam and Eve could continue even a moment without sinning then, uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, taught, teaches, that uh, they had a a super-added gift. They had the special gift of God, that kind of an extra grace that helped them to fight against this concupiscence. But then when they fell, nonetheless, that, that special gift disappeared, and now none of us have it, and yet we're all still born now with this concupiscence, with this sort of natural desire for sin. Now, baptism, they claim, uh, wipes out all of the effects of original sin, right? You're basically kind of back to the situation with Adam and Eve with baptism, except that you don't have that special super-added gift, and now you're just left on your own to struggle with your concupiscence, and no one without the help of God can overcome that concupiscence. But the, the distinct point that they make is that this concupiscence, right, this, this desire for sin is not truly and properly sin. And that's their language, right? So when, when you see the language truly and properly sin in our confession, they're quoting the Roman Catholics. They're quoting the Council of Trent, which said that, all right, the concupiscence that remains even within believers, yes, we have this desire for sin, but that desire is not truly and properly sin. It only becomes sin when the will consents to it and when you act upon it. But the desire itself isn't sinful. Now, Calvin and all the Reformers and the Puritans and all of our confessions uh, denies that notion of concupiscence. Now, it says, yes, people still have a natural innate desire for sin, right? That's the the corruption inherited or, or received, conveyed from Adam. But it is truly and properly sin, even the the desire. Now, some of you might be thinking, is that really true? You you kind of look at what, as I've described, the Roman Catholic uh, notion of this, and you might think that kind of makes sense, right? If you just have a desire for sin, but you don't act on it, if you resist it, right, if you don't consent to it, is that sinful desire itself still sinful, in and of itself. Well, our confession is clear on that. Our remaining corruption itself, even just the remaining corruption, is truly and properly sin. But along with 
all of its motions, even its very first motions, the very first motions of our sinful corruption, even in believers, are truly and properly sin. Now, what does that phrase, first motions, mean? Well, this uh, term motions, uh, back in the day, and uh, as we can see clearly, even in the King James translation of the scriptures, uh, it was used in places to translate the, the Greek word that in our modern translations is normally translated as passions, right? Our passions or our sinful desires, Right, there's a couple of Greek words, and they're, they're synonymous with each other, but they, but they refer to these passions, right? These, these, these inward stirrings and these desires, and generally in the context of a sinful desire, a desire for something sinful. For instance, in Romans 7, 5, back to Romans 7, uh, Paul writes, and this is the authorized version, this is the King James Version, says, for when we were in the flesh... The motions of sin, which were aroused by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. And so it's the, the motions of sin. The ESV translates this, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And then if you, if you trace that word and, and similar words throughout the New Testament, it becomes clearer and clearer that, yes, the New Testament teaches that even sinful desires, even desires that are not acted upon, even those are sinful. Uh, just a, a few other places, we could look at many, many of them. But uh, another proof text for this passage in Galatians 5.17, Paul writes, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, this sounds very much like Romans chapter 7, and Paul describing himself in Romans chapter 7, now describing the experience of, of all believers. But he says there's desires of the flesh. There are these motions of the flesh that are opposed to the Spirit. And if something is opposed to the Spirit, then yes, it in and of itself must be sinful. Uh, a few verses later, in Galatians 5.24, Paul writes, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. <laughs> What's interesting here is not, not only does it use this word that in other places is translated as motions, but in the Latin translation, the Latin Vulgate, it also uses the word concupiscence, <laughs> concupiscence, and it's saying this is something that is crucified, uh, mortified uh, for those who, are, are, who belong to, to Christ Jesus. But uh, Colossians 3.5, just one more, uh, here we're, we're being commanded to mortify something, to put to death a, a list of sins, and what are those things that we're to put to death? He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, sorry, evil desire, again, you get the same two words, and covetousness, which interestingly, covetousness or coveting in Romans chapter 7 is also translated by the word concupiscence. <laughs> so, yes, and, and what is the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. You shall not even have a desire for something that is sinful. Uh, again, we could go on and on, but yes, the confession is right. 
Now, again, this, this might seem extreme to us. You might be surprised by that. So even when we are, are, are tempted and, and something in us responds to that temptation and says, yes, I want that sin, and then even if you resist that and you, and you don't act upon that, even that initial impulse, even that initial desire, our confession says, is truly and properly sin. The very first motions, and actually our confession is, is even a little bit more explicit, I think, in this than the Westminster and the Savoy that it's based on. Now, the Westminster and the Savoy say that all of the motions of our sinful corruption are truly and properly sin. Our confession says, no, even the very first motions, and then, of course, all the motions after that, but even the first motions of our sinful, corrupt uh, nature are truly and properly sin. Now, yes, it is worse sin if you give in to those desires and actually act upon them. And so I'm not saying, okay, well, you had a sinful desire, you've already sinned, now you might as well give in to it. Absolutely not. Uh, that would go contrary to all of the scriptures. It is worse sin if you give in to it. But even that desire, and of course it is. Uh, Nehemiah Cox, who, again, was, was most likely the main editor of our confession, he, he wrote a book against a, uh, another Baptist heretic, but he, he claimed to be a Baptist, uh, Thomas Collier. And, uh, and he addresses this, and he says one of the, the errors in Thomas Collier's teaching was that, no, just desires for sin, that's fine. That's not sinful in and of itself unless the will acts upon it. And he says, you're talking just like the Catholics. <laughs> he says, that's absolutely not the case. And he says, well, what is it? I mean, even for an instant, if your flesh, right, if your remaining corruption, if God says this is an abomination to you, and even for an instant, you entertain the thought, no, but I want that. What is that? And, 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 and Cox calls it something like a, a principle of rebellion within us. Right? And how would anything that is a principle, even a desire of the flesh that is opposed to the Spirit, how could that not be sinful? It is sinful, and the Scriptures make that clear. You entertain that thought, even for an instant, when that stirring, that, even that initial stirring... And you might think, well, I'm not in control of that. Well, no, you're not <laughs> completely in control of that. And yet, it's still the stirrings of your corrupt, sinful nature, and it's in opposition to God. It's, it's an, an act of rebellion against God's law. Now, I, I had drawn out this application more fully at the, the pastor's lunch, and I just want to mention it here uh, today. You know, why is this important? Why is it important to emphasize that, yes, even sinful desires even if they're not acted upon, are sinful. And I think in, in our day, and even in Reformed circles, this has particular relevance to discussions on the sin of homosexuality. Uh, there are many, even Reformed people, who, are, who, who have subscribed to the Westminster Confession and other, other confessions that state the same thing that, that, that our confession states, that says, no, it's okay. I, I've heard the phrase, you know, homosexuality is not a sin. Homosexual activity is a sin. But I would say, no, that's flatly and directly contradicted by our confession of faith. But again, that, it doesn't just apply to the one sin of homosexuality. Heterosexual lust <laughs> operates the exact same way. Uh, think of Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? You've heard it has been said, you shall not murder 
I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Now, yes, it's worse if you go on to act on that anger and murder your brother. But he's saying even just the anger, even that stirring of your sinful, that first motion of your sinful corruption in anger, which is, you know, the full fruit of which would be murder, he says you are guilty of a violation of the the sixth commandment already, right? You look on a woman to, to lust after her. Even if you don't commit adultery with her, you're already guilty of that in your heart before God, of a violation of the seventh commandment. Of course we know this is the teaching of Scripture, and yet uh, some uh, deny this, and I don't think all of us even often think of our own sinful impulses and desires in that same way. But it is important, and it is helpful for us to know. Again, it, it helps us to understand and appreciate the true depth of our sin, even still for believers. Every time that remaining corruption within us the first, first begins to stir, that's sinful. It's contrary to God and to, his, and to his law. And so, yes, even that we should repent of. Right? We normally only repent when we act and, on temptation and we commit a sin. But no, yeah, just the, the stirring of anger toward your spouse, even if you don't lash out with your tongue. That's sinful before God. You need to repent of that. And not just repent of that, and not just of repenting of sinful actions, sinful words, but of sinful thoughts, sinful desires themselves. And again, it's important to recognize that as sin because we need to know, right, we're called, as we saw in Colossians 3, we're called to put to death these things within us. We're called to mortify our sins, all of our sins. And what are we called to mortify? Not just the sinful actions, but even the sinful desires themselves. I would commend to you, I'm sure many of you have already read it. If you haven't read it for a while, reread it again, The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. And, and come to it now with, with maybe this in mind, and you'll see over and over and over again, Owen makes the point. The object of our mortification, the thing that we are to try as Christians with the help of the Spirit to put to death is not just our sinful actions. It's the sinful desires themselves. That is, is helpful to know. But, you know, that's also very hopeful. Right? Because we think, okay, well, maybe I can only kind of partially control my sinful actions. No, the Scriptures teach us, this teaches us, we can actually, by the help of the Spirit, mortify the very root of it, right? The very sinful desire itself. And so I think that this, by, by, by telling people, no, your sins are not just the things that you do or say, they're the things that even you desire, that's actually hopeful because if sinful desires and the first motions and stirrings of sinful desire are themselves truly and properly sin, then that means that they can, as our confession says here, be pardoned through Christ and they can be mortified through Christ. And I would say, again, that has application to, to discussions on homosexuality. There are those saying, no, this is something innate. It is immutable, and it's not sinful as long as I don't act on it. 
Well, we can tell them, no, there's hope. If you see that even that sinful desire is truly and properly sin, then yes, in Christ it can be pardoned, but in Christ it can be mortified, <laughs> along with homo- or heterosexual lust, along with anger, along with all of the sinful desires that we struggle with. But we need to recognize that's what we're aiming to kill, not just the action, not just when it's consented to, but the very desire itself. So yes, the remaining sin of believers, it's a reality, and yes, it is still sinful. It is truly and properly sin, even down to the level of the very first motions of our sinful desires. Still very much sin, right? We might think, well, you know, because I'm saved, because I'm forgiven by Christ, now my sin, yeah, I know God still doesn't like it, but at least it's not, you know, as bad as my sins were before. Now it's still truly and properly sin. It is still an affront to God and to his law. And in fact, if, as we argued yesterday, if context of a sin can aggravate the guilt of that sin as it did with Adam, could make the argument that the sins of believers are even more grievous than the sins of unbelievers. Because you think of, of unbelievers, as, as Dr. Bauckham just said, they are uh, non posse, non peccare. It's not possible for them not to sin. But as believers, regenerated, who have a new heart, who have the Spirit of God, we are posse peccare. Yes, still, it's, still, uh, it's possible for us to sin, but we are also posse non peccare. It is possible for us not to sin. And so if we would choose to sin, especially if we choose to give in to those sinful desires and impulses, even when we know by the power of the Holy Spirit we don't have to, Again, could that not be argued that that's even more grievous? And you think of the context of it as well. Unbelievers sin against a God who is, yes, their creator. They experience his general goodness and long-suffering, but he's a God that they know, but they suppress that knowledge is going to come in judgment uh, one day against them. But as believers, who are we sinning against? We're sinning against God not just as our creator, but as our Redeemer. We're sinning not just against a general common goodness, but we're sinning against grace. We are sinning in the face of a God who loved us and gave his Son for us. So yes, we need to take, as believers, our remaining sin down to the level of our sinful desires very, very seriously. We need to be in constant repentance for those things, and we need to be, by the help of the Spirit, constantly seeking the mortification of it. The fact that our sins have been pardoned in Christ does not make them any less sinful. They are still very much truly and properly sin, and we need to remember that. But we are at the end of our conference, and don't think I want to end on a note like that, even though that's where our confession ends. But, you know, as I said, this paragraph is there's sin in Adam, and there's more sin because that sin gets spread to all people. And then even as believers, there's still sin. But we've looked at the, the, uh, you know, the reality of remaining sin. It is real. We've looked at the sinfulness of remaining sin. 
Thirdly and finally, I'd like us to consider the advantages of remaining sin. The advantages of remaining sin. Now, if that language strikes you as strange, uh, if it seems even maybe a bit reckless or blasphemous, don't blame me. Blame the author of the hymn that we just sang, John Newton. <laughs> John Newton. I took that language directly from him. Uh, John Newton is, is known to most Christians, of course, as the author of Amazing Grace, maybe a few other hymns that they're aware of. That's what he's known for. Um, but in, in his own day, it's, it's possible, it seems likely to me, he was even more well-known uh, not as a hymn writer, but as a letter writer. <laughs> he, he wrote, I don't even know how many, hundreds of letters. And, uh, and he must have kept copies of them because somehow they survived and he was able to publish them. But he, uh, even in his own lifetime, he was so well known as a letter writer that, uh, that he was convinced to publish uh, some collections of his, his letters. He would redact all the private information and everything like that. But he wrote these letters, and they really are incredible. Um, I just, in the sheer providence of God, random circumstances, came across a collection of, of John Newton's letters when I was a young Christian and read them and, and just couldn't believe it. It's like each one is, is like an essay. It's like a theological you know, tract on, on a particular subject, whatever he's doing. People all over England would write to him, you know, evangelical Christians who maybe their own bishop in the Anglican church wasn't evangelical, was just kind of complete liberal. And so they would, they would write to John Newton, and they would ask him for advice, for counsel, and he would, he would respond. And uh, if you ever are able to pick up a collection of Newton's letters, they're definitely well worth uh, the read. But, but one of the first of Newton's letters that I ever read, uh, I, I did so because it, it was given a rather intriguing title. It was entitled, The Advantages of Remaining Sin, or Advantages from Remaining Sin, so slightly different, but Advantages from Remaining Sin, and I thought, okay, what, what, is, what is this going to be about? It's the third letter that he wrote to someone on the subject of remaining sin, and so this isn't the only thing he has to say about remaining sin, but it is uh, the third, just like this is our third point this morning. But uh, in that, he, he suggests reasons why God allows the corruption of Adam's sin to remain in believers. And, and which of us hasn't had that same thought? You know, which of us, at a, at a moment like the one that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, uh, which of us has not wondered, maybe wondered aloud to God, why, why don't you just take this sin away? Why don't you just take this, this burden from me? Why doesn't God at the moment of conversion just, just zap us and, and make us sinlessly perfect? We would prefer that. But uh, John Newton here addresses this and suggests a few reasons why uh, he reasons first that God must have some good reason for allowing sin to remain in believers. And he reasons this from the fact that God does allow <laughs> sin to remain in believers. And he says if God does something, he must have a good reason for it. Uh, he writes, if the evils we feel were not capable of being overruled for good he would not permit them to remain in us. This we may infer from his hatred to sin and from the love which he bears to his people. 
<laughs> he said, if God really hates sin and he loves his people, and yet he allows sin to remain within his people, there must be something that he intends to accomplish in and through that. Uh, now, I feel the need at this point to reiterate that none of what I'm about to say about these advantages from remaining sin should be taken in any way that would cause us to excuse our sin, to minimize our sin. I've already, just you know, the whole last point, emphasized the, the true and proper sinfulness of our remaining sin. This isn't to take away from any of that. Uh, it shouldn't cause us to, to slacken at all in our efforts to put our remaining sin and our sinful desires to death. And so, caveat, keep that in mind. But what are some of the advantages from remaining sin that Newton suggests? Uh, I think I'm just going to summarize these rather than read at length. You can find this letter easily on, online. Just Google Newton advantages from remaining sin and the letter will come right up. So you can read that later. It's not that long. It's a letter. Uh, but really, he, he, he argues first that, that through the believer's even ongoing struggle with, with sin, that God uses that to reveal more and more of himself to us, right? That we might know and understand more and more of him. He, he speaks particularly of God's power, uh, right? As, it, yes, through the ongoing process of mortification, we see God's power at work to, to help us as we make that incremental growth in, in holiness. We see God's wisdom. We see his faithfulness. His, his love even to us, right? He writes at one point, the, the unchangeableness of the Lord's love, right? The unchangeableness, right? Despite our repeated failures, our many, many sins, the unchangeable of the Lord's love, the riches of his mercy are likewise more illustrated by the multiple pardons he bestows upon his people than if they needed no forgiveness at all. Uh, he refers to... Uh, the gospel account uh, where, you know, it said she, she loves much because she was forgiven much. <laughs> and he says, as we become aware of, of how much we are forgiven and then forgiven again and then forgiven again, we see more of God's faithfulness. We see more of Christ's love for us. Uh, he says that our struggle with remaining sin certainly humbles us. <laughs> it humbles us. Right? Can you imagine if God zapped us, made us perfectly sinless? Well, I guess we wouldn't struggle with pride, but you know, we'd probably forget what wretched sinners we were, and uh, perhaps we, we wouldn't appreciate as much how weak we are, how much we need him. Right? So it humbles us. It makes us more dependent upon God. It says, every day, uh, John, uh, Newton writes, every day draws forth some new corruption which was before little observed, or at least discovers it in a stronger light than before. Thus, by degrees, we are weaned from leaning to any supposed wisdom, power, or goodness in ourselves. We feel the truth of the Lord's words, without me ye can do nothing. And again, would we learn that lesson if we didn't continue to struggle with our sin and, and re be reminded of our weakness and our need for his strength? Uh, finally, and again, I'm just summarizing these. Uh, Newton argues that this experiential knowledge of our own remaining sin enables us to be more gentle and compassionate with others struggling in sin, with our fellow sinners. Right? Remember what it's like to struggle with that sin. 
and so we can be compassionate. You know, why does God allow the believer to continue struggling with remaining corruption? Through that struggle, again, Newton reasons, we can learn more of the nature and character of God. We come to appreciate more of the love and mercy of Christ. We're further humbled and convinced of our absolute dependence upon Christ for all things. And we become more patient and compassionate toward our fellow sinners. And ultimately, we learn more to give God all the glory for any and every good that he accomplishes in and through us, right? Because we're proven every day, it's not from me. You know, as Paul says, in me there dwells no, in my flesh, that is, there dwells no good thing. If there's any good, it is all of God, and he receives all of the glory. Now, if you're wondering if any of this has anything still to do with our confession, uh, yes, it does. Now, it might be beyond the scope of this last paragraph that we looked at, but paragraph 5 of chapter 6, which is what we're dealing with, comes after and should be read in light of paragraph 5 of chapter 5. Uh, if you have a copy of the confession, I would, uh, I would uh, encourage you to turn to chapter 5 and paragraph 5. Uh, that's the chapter on the providence of God, on his sovereign and wise control over all things, driving them toward the accomplishment of his preordained purposes. And in that, our confession in paragraph 5 includes, under the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, the believer's ongoing struggle with sin, which God allows, we're told there, even at times to be quite intense. I imagine it's, a, it's a, a period like is described here that the Apostle Paul was thinking back on when he penned the end of, of Romans chapter 7. But there our confession reads this, and some of this should sound a bit familiar from what we just heard from Newton. Says this, paragraph 5, chapter 5, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God. So we're reminded right up front, he's wise, he's, uh, he's righteous, he's gracious. So what he's going to do is from wisdom, righteousness, and grace. Says that uh, this God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. A believer still dealing with this remaining corruption. Why does he do this? To chastise them for their former sins. To discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. That they may be humbled. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends. <laughs> uh, this paragraph could be entitled, Advantages from Remaining Sin. It ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect, and that includes perhaps even being left for a season to a, a period of intense struggle with our remaining corruptions, Whatever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. In addition to Romans 8.28, of course, <laughs> uh, God works all things together, even our ongoing struggle with sin for the good of those who love him. 
In addition, one of the proof texts of this paragraph is 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, it's the account of Paul's struggle with his thorn in the flesh. Now, many people have theorized about what exactly this thorn in the flesh was. Most seem to come to the conclusion that it was some sort of physical malady, like eye issues or something like that. I think that's the most common one that I've heard. But at least the editors of our confession, again, by putting this as a proof text for this paragraph, chapter 5, paragraph 5, saying God sometimes leaves his children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, it seems at least our, uh, the editors of our confession interpreted this thorn in the flesh of Paul to be more of a spiritual struggle, not something purely physical, perhaps even with some besetting temptation. Maybe the very temptation that Paul was bemoaning and, and lamenting in Romans chapter 7. Again, it shouldn't surprise us if Paul is describing himself in Romans 7. Uh, that this is some sort of spiritual struggle also fits with the other description in 2 Corinthians 12 of this thorn of the flesh as a messenger from Satan, right? A messenger from Satan. This is spiritual. And you know what happens there? Paul pleads with God multiple times to take this thorn, to remove this thorn, but God chose to let it stay. It remained, we could say remained with Paul. And why? Well, Paul tells us there. It was to keep me humble, right? Because I was having these incredible visions of things that no other mortal had ever seen. I, myself, as the Apostle Paul, could have been caught up in in pride, be puffed up uh, beyond recognition. And so in order to keep me humble, God gave or allowed this thorn in the flesh to remain. He did not remove it. And, so to keep Paul humble, and to keep Paul dependent upon God's grace, and to glorify God's grace in the very context of Paul's weakness. What is the lesson that Paul was to learn? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Perhaps then there are even some advantages from remaining sin. Again, while this truth in no way minimizes the true sinfulness of our remaining sin, while it should not at all uh, cause us to use this as an excuse to give in to our sins, or to slacken in our fight against our remaining sins. If, if this causes you to do that, that is an abuse of these teachings of our confession. Yet nonetheless, whatsoever befalls any of God's elect, even our continued struggle with remaining sin, is by his appointment for his glory and our good. But it really, by this point, shouldn't surprise us that our God is able to overrule even our own remaining sin as believers for our good and for his glory. Because haven't we already seen that in this chapter? Right? Already he did that with the very first and the mother of all sins, with the fall of Adam. He overruled that. He purposed to allow it for his own glory. And isn't this the the very truth that is at the heart of the gospel? 
that the greatest sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world, the murder of the Son of God, even that God overruled to bring about the greatest good that has ever been in the history of the world, the eternal salvation of his people and his own eternal glory. May he indeed be glorified in all. Let's pray.